Hello and welcome to the Investors Chronicle Companies and Markets show. I'm Megan Boxall, podcast editor in the Investors Chronicle, filling in because we've got a bit of a staff absence today, but I think we're going to do a great podcast anyway. And I'm joined by Emma Powell, news editor and banking specialist. And that is where we are going to focus a lot today on on the big banks. They've all had their results now. And also later in the episode, we're going to be joined by Mark Robinson, who is who's stuck at home. Apparently, all the weather is causing problems on the train. So he's in Surrey, but he's going to be talking to us about Countrywide. So Emma, first of all, big banks. It has been a big couple of weeks for, for the banks. Which of them has come out of the reporting season looking the strongest? Yeah, we've just had we've just had all the first half results. Not many big surprises, I don't think. Well, I'll come on to this later, but obviously RBS, even that, then returning to dividends wasn't wasn't a massive surprise. We kind of expected it, maybe. But but yeah, if you're talking about who kind of came out best, I have to say uh, RBS just for the simple fact that, you know, it is, it is a milestone moment, um, as the chief exec said. Um, first dividend in a decade since they were bailed out. Quite a small one, just uh, 2p a share, they reckon they're going to uh, gonna declare. Um, and that's basically down to the fact that, obviously, as, as we found out uh, a few months ago, they've, you know, they've settled with the US Department of Justice, um, they they've kind of cleared up making contributions to their pension scheme, their their capital levels um, now a, a, a very high sixteen point one percent. Is that the um, highest? That's the highest now. Yes, that's very. I mean, that's 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 very high. That's even higher than Lloyd's, mm-hmm. and that's including. I mean, it did actually drop. I think it was about thirty basis points um, after taking into account the kind of DOJ settlement and the pension contribution. But it was because of that that that, that really they were able to then to recommence dividends. Obviously, they the, the chief exec did say. Um, I think it was back in May when they, when they actually made the settlement that they. Um, that they were then going to start the conversation with the Prudential Regulatory Authority, which obviously has to approve all kind of banking dividends um, about it. So we, so we did expect that. Nevertheless, the shares did go up about 3%, which is quite a big move for them. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, and then they also said uh, potentially they, they would make additional capital returns from, from next year, which would be massive if that would be, I don't know, special dividends, share buybacks. But it's really um, the, the other actually um, thing worth mentioning is obviously this is now the last remaining state-backed bank. Mm-hmm. So the government sold its stake in Lloyd's and and that's left Lloyd's in a, in a potentially more exciting opportunity it's in a freer position it can do a bit more than than maybe rbs can yeah definitely i mean the the uh i think it's 62.4% the government still it's got a stake. stake it's a big stake yeah it's a big stake um they've they've only done two share sales so far the last one was um a couple of months ago obviously following this settlement um so they've got a seller in the market RBS. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, so that's not going to do much for the share price. Well, this is the big point I was going to make. Was you know, yeah, the caveats are saying this: the return to dividends, you know, capital levels improved, all this, um, because the government does have such a big stake to continue to sell down. We're going to see that. That is obviously going to be an overhang on the shares. Mm-hmm. So is that why you've kept RBS on a hold? Because you've got all the rest of the big banks on buy tips. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I yeah RBS is still a hold I think 
obviously it has you know it has got rid the, the DOJ um, settlement you know that was seen as the kind of last big legacy issue they've got rid of that now it's it's mainly on a valuation basis to be honest I think it's on about it's just shy of in line with its forecast uh, net tangible assets about 0.9 times Lloyd's is on about 1.2 so obviously it is more expensive but Lloyd's got now a pretty solid track record since 2014 of paying out dividends. Um, you know, it's yielding, I think it's yielding just over 5%. Whereas RBS, okay, yeah, we have returned to dividend payments, but it's, you know, it's minute, the yield. I just don't think, I think if you've got something like Lloyd's, which would be its closest competitor, you'd argue, I think that's a far better opportunity. Right. Okay, so... With regard to the RBS dividend, though, do you think that's looking relatively secure? Do you think they've waited until they're in a secure enough position before they start paying them again? Yeah, definitely. I mean, with a capital level like that, definitely. Okay, so RBS looking looking all right, looking better, definitely yeah. worth a hold. Mm-hmm. Not sure. I'd 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 I think there's better opportunities okay. elsewhere. HSBC is one that you think is a better opportunity. You've got that on a buy. It's got a nice yield, a five point six percent yield at the moment. And they also had results this week. So what's going on there? HSBC has, it was in our income majors feature, as was Lloyd's. That that bank, actually, in terms of income, you could argue has been the best. It was kind of a bit of an oddity in the sector because I think it never completely stopped paying a dividend. It did have to cut it in 2009. But it's just kept it's kept paying the dividend out at fifty one cents a share. It's not the most well covered dividend, you know. It's a high risk income stock if you if you are going to buy it, and it is at a slight premium to its kind of closest peer, which you say is Standard Chartered. But it's also got quite a good record of share buybacks. So they've they've done one this year. They're not going to do any more uh, this year. They expect, um, which some investors were disappointed about, but. The main reason, the main thing now with HSBC is, is that they are investing more capital back into the business for growth. I mean, they're obviously big in kind of, they've kind of their Asia pivot, as they call it. So it's focusing very much on growing um, in the Pearl River Delta. Um, in, near Hong Kong. Yeah. So uh, they see that as a massive growth opportunity and also digital banking. But it also means obviously that cost. And actually that was, that was the main thing uh, with these results, which some people were disappointed about because costs have been rising and they've been rising at a rate faster than income. So income was up, but because costs were just greater, obviously the, the profits dipped. I mean, I don't see that as, I mean, it's, you know, it's not great, is it? But I can see why they're spending that money. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the, the capital levels are still within management's target, which is about 13%. I think they're it's over 14%, their CT1 ratio. Um, and I think as long as they can keep that as long as they can keep within that target range um i think the dividend looks looks mm-hmm. secure enough and that is what it is it's you're, you're buying that for the dividend really yeah. and also maybe it's exposure in emerging markets which makes it potentially a bit more of an exciting big bank than lloyd's or rbs well exactly i mean a lot of the i guess there's well there's two sides to that isn't there um because on the one hand yes uh they would argue in the same way actually some of the asia focused life assurers would argue there's massive demand for savings products over there you know you've got the rising middle class i was gonna say on the flip side i guess now we have all these uh kind of fears around a potential trade war and mm. and uh you know all the kind of back and forth between the us and china i don't know if 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 that could drag on sentiments 
slightly. But I mean, it, it, I wouldn't say it's, you know, it's not just China that's in that predicament at the no. moment. No, but HSBC and actually all the banks could in the next few months receive a little bit of a boost from the interest rate rise, which we had in the UK last week. Yeah. So what does this mean for the for the big banks and also for the, the smaller ones in the sector? You also cover the challenger banks and you compared those two sectors in your alpha feature, which is online and a great read. So what, yeah, what does this mean for, for the entire banking sector? Well, theoretically, it's a good thing because one of the massive problems during the past few years has not just been obviously all these legacy and kind of conduct issues. It's been the fact that with interest rates so low, it's very hard for them to make money. Obviously, mm-hmm. the banks make money by lending. On the, on the flip side, obviously, it's it's meant they've got very cheap cost of funding. So, you know, they're not paying out very much on deposits. But uh, typically, because you make money from lending over longer term, which they haven't really been able to do, you know, we've had a kind of inverse yield curve, then it's really squeezed their net interest margins. Um, so theoretically, this this rise, you know, is a, is a good thing. Um, there'll be a there'll be a lag effect, you know, eventually, it, it should be being passed through down into uh, deposit rates. I guess, I mean, the main thing to mention is obviously 0.75% is still very low mm-hmm. historically you know it's is is a good thing but i don't think it's it's historically very you know it's like pre-financial crisis what did we have i think it was 5 6% so it is it is historically very low the, the other potential negative i think actually and perhaps you could argue this is more for kind of the challenges which have a lot of exposure in buy to let lending. I mean, it's it's a massive part. You know, people like Paragon, uh, when savings banks, Charter Core, which listed listed recently. If the cost of you know paying back your mortgage goes up now, you know we have this rise in interest rates. Obviously, some a lot of people will have locked in. I think to kind of you know two year fixed mortgage and things like that. But the danger is, is if you do get people now that perhaps can't make the interest payments or can't make the payments. I mean, that's you could and then start defaulting on their loans. You could argue that could potentially be a risk of rising interest rates um, because these challenges are so they're not very well diversified like the major banks are. I mean, again, I guess on that point, it is a very, you know, it's it's a small it's a small rise. Yeah. Not to worry too much then? No, no. Okay, so what's your top pick in the in the challenger sector? I'd probably go for Paragon, actually. In fact, we did tip that recently. Mm. It's not very high. It's trading at a discount um, to its historical average at the moment. Like I said, it's got it's got exposure to buy to let, but it kind of concentrates on the professional market. So people operating through a limited company, um, which were exempt from the um, mortgage mortgage interest rate relief reforms. So they concentrate on that market. That market's been growing. They also specialise in kind of complex cases, which because they take so much time to kind of underwrite a lot of the big banks kind of, for, I mean, for other reasons too, but moved out of that space. But also, I think what I find really attractive about Paragon versus maybe some other challenger banks is the fact that they've got access to the kind of a large base of customer deposits. So they've switched out a lot of uh, the business. They they now kind of um, funnel through Paragon banking, hence actually the name change, um, rather than the Paragon mortgages business. So 
as we've kind of just discussed, because interest rates have been so low, having customer deposits, uh, you know, you're not paying very high interest rates on those. It's a cheap cost of funding, which obviously benefits their margins. And a lot of the challengers haven't had the same access to those to those deposits. Um, So that's I would say that the fact that they've kind of got more diverse funding base kind of makes them stick out to me. Okay, interesting. And well, while we're talking well, slightly about mortgages and buy to let lending. This week has been there's been some big news from the estate agent sector. So we are going to go to Mark Robinson, who's covered the results of Countrywide. Uh, hi, Mark. You've spent the week looking. Well, you haven't spent the whole week. You've had lots of other stuff to do as well. But part of your week has been spent looking at the estate agents and uh, particularly Countrywide, which had uh, had a pretty disastrous week. What, what's what's happened there? Well, the, um, the the shares just absolutely tanked uh, through the week. There, uh, the the company reported some uh, half year figures, which were weren't that inspiring themselves. But it was accompanied by details of a of a, a capital raise, a heavily discounted capital raise. About yeah, 80%. shocking, eighty percent, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean it's it's another just to a, a fire sale, uh, really. Mm-hmm. And um, the reasons are, are pretty well known and. The, you know, the, the background to it was covered when we initially put the shares on the sale, which I think uh, Jonas put them on the sale back in, it might have been January uh, 2017. Um, Good call. In the, last, in the last few months, uh, there's been a couple of um, uh, profit warnings. The chief executive left. The, the simple reason, um, it comes down to uh, to leverage, really. Mm-hmm. Um you know the the, the debt profile is uh, fairly ghastly. At, at the half year period, they owed something in the region of uh, two hundred eight million pounds. Mm-hmm. But more to the point, that represents nearly five times um, adjusted EBITDA cash profits, and nearly yeah. six times their current market cap. Well, yeah. I mean, um, anyway, you look at the, the metrics; it's it's it's, uh, it's bizarre, really. Yeah. Um, so they had about 37.8 uh, million in cash at that period, and 30 million of that was down was uh, linked to a, a 30 million pound drawdown on their credit facility. Um, they're, they're selling pretty close to the wind because they had interest payments, uh, cash interest payments last year of about four million pounds, uh, and there was a 21 million pound um, operating outflow as well. So you know when you add all up that together I mean they're in a position where they really just had to go back and uh, mm-hmm. um, I, I suppose senior debt uh, was out of the question yeah so they had to go back to the market and basically almost give the shares away yeah well you, you've described it as uh, as game over if uh, if this fundraising doesn't go as planned yeah that's yeah I mean I, I think I I quoted um I used a quote from the actual issue document itself. Yeah, the quotes were so worrying. Under the terms of the amended credit facility, the group's lenders could, following a short negotiation period, demand repayment of all borrowings which the group cannot afford. Yeah, that's that's fairly explicit, really. I think think it's a case as well when it it came around to the audit. The auditors wouldn't be able to uh, sign off the accounts as, uh, as a going concern. So, I mean, there's nothing really they could do. They could maybe sell off some of their assets, but uh, um, that would have been unsatisfactory as well. Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, when we looked at the 
the tip initially, one of the, the points that we made is that uh, uh, the, because of its debt, you know, it, it's, um, you know, it's referred to sometimes as uh, operational gearing. Mm-hmm. Uh, when, um, you know, when, you, when you've got a, a high fixed cost base, it ensures that margins rise when revenues go or they rise disproportionately. But of course, if you hold to that view, the, the opposite also applies. Yeah. And, and, uh, you know, a lot of volume has been taken out of that that market, and uh, it's almost as if countrywide problems. Have yeah, been it's been a, it's been tough to be an estate agent, especially in yeah. in the UK in the last few years. But actually, we had results from Savills today, and and they weren't too bad. They weren't great, but they weren't. Yeah. I mean, they're not nearly the kind of position that that Countrywide well, is in. We had the same thing with uh, Foxton's um, a few days before Countrywide as well. And um, you know, they've got a particular focus on, on London, and London, in relative terms, is, uh, has been uh, hit pretty hard. Mm. Um, it's just that the volume's got out of the market. I mean, the, the, the pricing itself, uh, there isn't really any price discovery out there because the, the volume's been taken out of the market and like... Uh, you know, where you're selling sort of bread, fish, or, or real estate, you know, once that goes, it's very difficult to find what the lay of the land is regarding the price of itself. If you haven't followed our advice, which we've been giving for over a year and, and sold yet, what should you now do in this in this rather unfortunate position? Well, I mean, it's, um, you, you know, you, there isn't much of an option, really. You, you, you probably take them up because otherwise mm-hmm. I'm not quite sure what would be the you know if, the, the value of the breakup of the company because it, it could actually uh, come down to that yeah uh, I mean yeah, you know you, damned if you do damned if you don't sort of thing yeah so shareholders um, get to vote about this fundraising on the 28th of August yeah so we're recommending yeah. that they they agree to it and then and then take up their shares yeah I mean not all bad from an operational perspective because I mean after uh, the, the former chief executive uh, left at the end of uh, uh, or the beginning of this year I think it must have been Alison Platt she uh, it'd be unfair just to lump all the blame on, on her doorstep but she was a bit of a controversial figure she uh, didn't really have um, a background in the state agency never really worked in that industry. And I think she was coming out from a different angle. I think she had a fairly lengthy stint in, in Bupa, of all places. Uh, mm. So I'm not quite sure how, how that prepared. Uh, but uh, they've rejigged the board since then. They've brought in um, some industry um, uh, professionals. Uh, Paul Crefield, uh, who's um, ex-right move, he's, he's managing director now. And uh, Paul uh, Chapman, who was with Halifax, he's, he's the chief operating officer. And you can imagine just how busy he's going to be as well. Yeah. But they, uh, Mr. Crefield has uh, subsequently put the rumors to bed that they were thinking of selling off their premium brands, um, uh, John Wood and Hamptons. Um, so, you know, it's a three-year program. They're going to try and do get back to what they, they, they do best or what they thought they used to do best. Um, the only other thing we can mention is that, you know, as, as Jonas said back in uh, in 2017, obviously it's um, it's an industry which is in transition. Only about 7%, or 6 or 7% at the moment, is, um, is, or the market is taken up by non-conventional uh, real estate sales, but we, this percentage is, is bound to grow. You know, you've got um, people like Purple Bricks, obviously, in the market now, and, they, and they're disrupting that. So I think... Um, 
I think the good people at Countrywide will, will be actually looking at five, ten, fifteen years hence because of that that business model of the high street, high fixed costs. Mm. It, it may well become a thing of the past. You know, mm. Okay, interesting. Thanks very much, Mark. Okay, thanks a lot, Megan. And now let's talk about the cover feature this week, which is the real deal, and it's all about private equity and. Emma, you and James Norrington have had a look at how private investors can get into this private equity, which to me has always seemed like a bit of an elusive club. I mean, it does conjure up images. And actually, James did write this about about the film Wall Street and, and Gordon Gekko and, and that sort of image of a, of a very high net worth individual. But you've looked at how it is actually accessible to a wider group of, of investors. So so what is the private equity market? How does it work? And, and how can normal investors get into it? Yeah, I think you are actually right in in saying that it that it comes across as, as a bit of a private members club. Mm. Um, basically, the way the way it works is you, you have a private equity firm or a limited partner who would who will raise money need to raise money for you know investing in whatever um, kind of asset company opportunities they see. So it's traditionally, I guess, kind of pension funds. It's become very popular with those, I guess, institutional investors, you know, fund managers. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you, you may have some high net worth individuals. They, they would be known as general partners. They would all invest in into that. But, you know, they wouldn't have, you know, they wouldn't be making investment decisions. Mm-hmm. And then from there, really, I guess the question how how then would would retail investors access it? It would typically be through um, kind of listed investment trusts mm-hmm. a lot of the time. Yeah. Because like I said, to invest in to invest in one of these funds, the minimum commitment is 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 usually around ten million dollars, which is a bit out of the reach of the uh, normal investor. <laughs> So yeah, that would that would basically be through an enlisted um, investment trust or, or a kind of um, venture capital trust. That that would be the way because obviously it's just listed. You could just buy buy a share. Yeah. Um, so why would you do that rather than investment in traditional assets? Well, I guess the I mean the the big push, um, and I know this actually as well from funnily enough when I used to cover pensions, the the. the the rise of private equity has been because interest rates have been so low. People are looking for something that maybe is not an equity, because people see that obviously it's high risk. Although actually, I'd argue private equity is uh, is also high risk. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're basically looking for yield, and when you can't get that across, you know, bonds, things like that, they've turned to alternatives. So that mm-hmm. could be private equity. Um, it could be real estate infrastructure where, you know, you're locking in money for a lot longer term. And that, that is a risk also, mm-hmm. um, you know, that they are a liquid, a liquid investments. But that's really why it's just the search for yield. And, and there's, I guess some people would argue they're not correlated with equities, although I kind of, as we discuss in the feature, would dispute that a little bit just because why wouldn't the same kind of, you know, macroeconomic factors impact an unlisted company as they would a listed company yeah that seems logical but well as you point out in the feature private equity companies have actually performed pretty well over the last few years you would have made a good return on your investment had you been invested in private equity and and as james points out maybe there is a slight difference between private equity and and traditional assets in that the private equity investors have so much knowledge on the specific companies which 
institutional investors don't necessarily have that level of knowledge because it's just it's not quite as accessible as as if you are a private company and you don't have to report to the markets but then that also is an issue with private equity isn't it in that it's not terribly opaque for your average joe investor well yeah that 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 is the issue obviously um you list you invest in an equity they've got a I don't. I think it's just twice yearly reporting now, isn't it? But most do quarterly updates. You know, you can see that. Um, you could go to an AGM if you wanted to. You mm. know, um, and speak to management directly. Whereas, yeah, if you're investing in a private equity and you're a retail investor, particularly, you know, you're investing in an investment trust who is then investing in who is just one one partner um, in a fund, and it is opaque and mm. it's difficult to maybe understand how assets are being valued you know how much influence is that institutional investor going to be able to have on the management of of the you know the the company the the end investment I'd argue not really any Mm -hmm. Um, you know the limited partner would obviously because they they would be the majority owner or have a big stake maybe in the company so that that is the issue I guess the 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 accountability issue Mm -hmm. And also, more recently, value is becoming a bit of a, a thing to be looking at in, in private equity and and how much these vehicles are having to pay for their investments because there isn't an awful lot of value to be found in the markets. Well, yeah, that's that's been one of the big problems. I think the stat is there's been um, $3 trillion raised in the past uh, five years in for, by private equity funds. But the issue now is that there's now so much competition for good investments. And it's not just for, um, you know, not just from other private equity investors, but also sovereign wealth funds and actually other companies that just want to merge or buy up assets. Because obviously Mm -hmm. you've had... um, with low interest rates, you've obviously had cheap debt. Mm-hmm. So now is the time, I guess, if you, if you are a company, you can borrow cheaply. You you want to be doing bolt-on acquisitions and things. You know, now's the time to do it. So that is an issue. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually there is data that shows, you know, the, the, the deal multiples are peaking and are actually above, uh, well, I guess we don't know whether they're peaking, they could continue rising, but they're rising now. Um, and I guess the, I think the average for the US and Europe is now higher than just before the financial crisis. So wow. people are paying more, basically. Yeah, yeah, it's actually an interesting link with our lead news story this week, which is about the animal healthcare market and CVS Group, which is a, a vet's owner. It's a listed company. You can you can buy shares in it, but it's being outcompeted for, or it's having to compete very hard to buy vets practices because private equity is so interested in it and they're, they're just hiking the prices of these vets practices and and it's yeah causing a problem for them so they're kind of outpricing each other which which doesn't doesn't look great for either party there but overall what, what do you think about the private equity market would you recommend investing in this sector it's a tricky one i mean I think there's definitely there are some opportunities. We we've actually included a table which has kind of Z scores. It's a it's a kind of metric algae looks at that kind of denotes value basically. Um, I think there definitely are some some opportunities. I think things to be aware of are the fees are high. I guess because of the amount of due diligence by the managers that you have got you have really got to think about kind of locking your money away leaving it invested for for a long time typically around 5 years and the i guess the other thing is the fact that you this would be a small 
portion proportion of of your portfolio i mean probably less than you know less than 10 percent mm-hmm. this is a small thing i guess it is an element of diversification but yeah it's it's for somebody also with a high, higher risk appetite just because i think of, of how opaque it can be really mm-hmm. okay well it's all very interesting and actually it's something i i wasn't really aware of at all before you wrote the feature that so my knowledge has expanded thank you and thanks for thanks for joining me and thanks to Mark too for joining us on the phone. All the usual comments in the magazine and uh, I'm doing my best John Human impression here. <laughs> and loads and loads of results as always during this busy results season. And John will be back next week with the next episode of the Companies and Markets show. But for now, pick up The Real Deal, why you can't afford to ignore private equity in all good news agents. Thanks for listening. <laughs>